I think you're really going to like this episode of STEM, Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and our guest today is Dr. Laura Maser. Laura is a plant breeder and product manager for Ball Flora Plant. She currently breeds some of the hottest vegetative crops on the market, Calabricoa, Angelonia, and Verbena. You're probably aware that a lot of breeding goes on behind the scenes in floriculture, seeing hundreds of new varieties coming to market each year. But I'm fairly sure you don't know everything that goes into it. From brainstorming the design of a new product, to gathering plant materials used to make crosses, to trialing in different environments, and then rolling out the product to greenhouse growers around the world, there's a complex pipeline involved. And Laura manages products all the way through, essentially doing two jobs as a breeder and product manager. In this episode, she's going to take us through the entire process using terms we can all understand, but also digging into the details and getting technical to inform us how and why plant breeders are not only scientists, but also magicians. That's my own technical word. By the end of this discussion, I know you will place even more value on breeding as a critical piece of the floriculture puzzle, and you'll have a better understanding of plant breeding, from concept to commercial. But first, Connect Four, where we take a look at four recent news stories lining up to support one key industry topic. I was recently sent an article by retail strategist and reporter Mike Troy titled, Where Tomorrow's Shoppers Are Heading, and it included so much forward-thinking information that I had to slot it for this episode's Connect Four. The basis for the article is the notion that new generations and types of consumers are challenging long-standing consumer products industry strategies, and that behavior is pretty scary for retailers and brands. We know that technology is progressing and changing at a very rapid pace, and innovations occurring in a very compressed time frame compared to the past. But for retailers and brands, this article suggests they must figure the future out quickly, faster than their competitors and consumers. In this article, Troy looks at nine trends, some established and some extremely new, pointing to where consumers are heading and what retailers and brands should expect. I'm going to highlight four. First, what the author calls conversational commerce and what the tech industry calls VEC, voice-enabled commerce. My family got one for Christmas, Alexa, the little speaker that sits in the family room connected to Amazon 24-7. Between Amazon's Alexa and Google's home device, more than 25% of American homes have smart speakers, and in the next five years, That number is expected to be 65%. Consumers are becoming more and more used to the experience and getting better at articulating needs for products and services. How long until the act of making a paper list and visiting a store to pick from the shelf becomes archaic is a subject of countless articles. One element of the future technology Troy warns companies to beware of is predictive technology. As he writes, humans are irrational, impulsive, and occasionally change their minds and want to try new things. Next, the rapid emergence of direct-to-customer sales, the DTC shift. There's a lot of growth in this model these days, and it makes sense to Troy. Shoppers want instant gratification, and they expect products to be available everywhere at any time. Today's consumer expects to buy when they choose, not when a traditional retailer or consumer goods company wants to allow them to do so. DTC enables brands to satisfy customers immediately, and with products that don't necessarily have the mass appeal and brand cachet required to get them on a retail shelf. DTC allows for niche products that don't require the same types of product launch strategies that depend on a large pool of retailers stocking the items. 
Third, the redefinition of brands and brand building. Historically, brands have stood for trust, quality, and making shopping decisions easier. But over the past few decades, these basic tenets have been eroded. The author points to decision simplifications and explains that brands pushing line extensions straying far from their core products have made it very difficult for even loyal shoppers to choose from the variations. The gap in quality has narrowed tremendously as private brands steadily improved and took over better or best categories at retail. It's now savvy to shop store brands. Trust still stands as an important factor, according to Troy, but today's consumer is becoming just as likely to experiment with smaller brands and determine trust before making repeat purchases. Often, these smaller brands are seen as more innovative, authentic, specialized, or aligned with a cause. One byproduct of this trend is major consumer products companies buying up the smaller players. The final chip in our game of Future Shopper Connect 4 is experience. Even in Lawn and Garden, we talk a lot about the customer experience and the retail experience. We use the term retailtainment. And so we've seen proof it works to engage new shoppers and maintain pretty steady sales from generation to generation. The author agrees that compelling shopping environments can be a retailer's antidote to the threat of e-commerce. But this may be changing somewhat as shoppers begin to move away from stuff. This is true for younger consumers who care less about what they own than where they are and who they're with. It's also true for older generations entering a downsizing and decluttering phase, according to the author. Retailers would be wise to keep in mind the value in encouraging experiences and helping shoppers be inspired to create and share memories. I'll put a link to the entire article with all nine future shopper trends in the show notes. No matter what the state of retail, we will always need new products to sell. So let's get into this episode about plant breeding, from concept to commercial. my pleasure to welcome Dr. Laura Maser to STEM. Laura is a plant breeder for Ball Flora Plant based in Arroyo Grande, California. She currently breeds Calabracoa, which includes the popular Conga and Cabaret series, Angelonia, and Verbena. In addition to her role as a breeder, she's also the product manager for these crops. Laura joined Ball Flora Plant in May of 2016, shortly after receiving her PhD in Molecular and Environmental Plant Sciences at Texas A&M where she also received her master's in plant breeding in 2012. Laura's graduate projects focused on oilseed sunflower and cow peas, or black-eyed peas. But Laura also worked with groups researching crops including tomato, cotton, and wheat. Laura, welcome to STEM. Uh, thanks, Bill. Great to be here. So first of all, I got a question. I, I wonder whenever I talk to plant breeders, and I've been wondering since we first met last year, What's the coolest plant breeding project you've ever been involved in, and did it end up being commercialized? Uh, well, that's it's a little bit tricky, Bill. Um, essentially, up until a couple years ago when I started at BFP, I've been in uh, graduate land. So um, we don't really get products commercialized um, at the university level. So I haven't had anything commercialized, but I've been able to work with a bunch of different crops. Um, I've worked with uh, tomato and castor and dertropha, um, let's see, wheat, uh, different types of cotton, sunflower, which is really cool. Um, but so far, my favorite is uh, the calabracoa that I'm working on right now for BFP. 
Um, the reason why I like it so much is because it's like there's so many different patterns and colors that you can get, and it's essentially seemingly endless, just the variety uh, within the genus. Um, also, it's really cool that with every generation that I have in the greenhouse, um, there's noticeable gain. So um, I think breeders can often feel like they're up against a wall trying to get gain or get breaks in their genetics. But with Calabracoa, it's every cross I make, I get a bigger flower size, I can get better branching, I can get rid of um, disease susceptibility. So uh, that's always very exciting. Um, so we're going forward with some new Verbena series that I'm really excited about in 2019. And though I uh, wasn't the breeder of those, that was done by a former breeder, I am the product manager for the Verbena as well as the current breeder. Um, so the first series is called Cadet, and it's going to be the new upright series of Verbena for ball floor plants. It has a full range of colors. Uh, it's great for growing quartz height on the bench, and it performs uh, great for the consumer. It will bloom all summer long um, and has nice, big, bright flowers. So uh, the second series that we're going to launch in 2019 is the Firehouse series. Uh, many of the growers have probably already heard about that, but we have some new genetics. This series is going to replace the old Aztec series. Um, so it's our basket spec. It performs really well in the greenhouse for the grower and is going to perform wonderfully for the consumer. It's um, the most powdery mildew resistant line that I know of on the market and uh, also does well on the heat, which is very important to me being somebody from the south who, you know, is so used to seeing things just collapse in the summer. So um, I'm, I'm really excited about this line. Um, so there's also a range of colors that are going to be available for Firehouse. Uh, a couple of my favorites are the lavender and the pink. Um, you can see them alongside the white and the purple right now at the Costa Trial Gardens in Homestead, Florida. So there's a couple rows of the BFP material. Um, so you can see our verbena and our new coleus launches, um, some Endurascape, which also everybody loves. But yeah, really excited about those. I, th I think it's exciting just to, to hear about solving problems and that, um, you know, your, your background's extensive with all those different crops, but now you're actually in, in there with ball flora plants solving problems for greenhouses uh, and growers across North America. That's I just think it's fantastic that, that you guys think so much about the end grower of the product and, and what and, and even like the conditions that those products are going to be planted in um, with the end consumer. So thank you for indulging me that opening question. So I guess we'll get down to business. Um, in your bio, one thing that jumps out is that you're a plant breeder and a product manager. It sounds like you have two full-time jobs, which I think a lot of people understand, but I mean, two, two full-time jobs working on crops. How does that work? And the a bunch of breeders also manage plant programs. So how does it work? I find that it works well for me, um, but I don't believe that a lot of the breeders in commercial breeding companies um, have both roles. Um, so usually how it works is that a product manager will work directly with the breeder and give them a spec 
um, in a certain class. Say the product manager will go to the breeder and say, I want a red trailing vinca. Uh, make it happen um, as fast as possible. And so the breeder goes and makes the crosses, makes the selections, and we'll sometimes see it through the initial trialing phases, maybe um, a couple seasons, and ultimately just hand it over to the product manager who goes and visits the, the remainder of the trials as it's advanced through the pipeline. Um, and then ultimately, the product manager is going to decide whether that product gets launched. So, at BAP, we work a little bit differently. Um, we work very often as a team, um, with many of the team members taking on different roles. So, once every two to three years, we get together as a group and have something called the Breeder Summit. So, the breeders will get together. There's three of us based in Rio Grande, and we have one in Holland. We get together with the rest of the R&D team. So this will be um, our product launch manager. Uh, we have uh, the president of the company. We have people from marketing, people from sales. Um, actually, even a lot of the sales reps will come. And we'll essentially think about, are the specs that we're shooting for right now working for us? Um, and are there any new specs that we want to work towards? So essentially, I guess maybe five years ago, somebody said, we need an upright verbena. And now the upright verbena is being launched. Um, so we had our breeder summit a couple years ago, and I've been working towards the goals uh, that were set forward for me then. And then we also decide on any new crops that we want to breed at that point. And we also decide if we need to actually get rid of some crops if they're just not profitable for us or they're just not working in some other way. So uh, we, I'll, I'll take that information, I'll start breeding, and I will breed and do all of the trialing. So essentially I make crosses and selections um, as many times as I need to. Um, I take the genetic and I watch it through at least two years of trialing. So everything that we put forward um, to go commercial has been through two years of trialing in multiple locations. So we do trialing in Texas. Um, so kind of so your hot days and your hot nights. So we get that, that good stressful heat read, also high humidity. We do trialing obviously in West Chicago. Uh, we have extensive trialing in California. We have trialing in uh, a grower operation such as Costa and other large growers. So this this helps us in a couple ways is we know how our product is going to look uh, when grown at these larger um, these larger growers and also the grower will get to see it as well. So they can decide whether or not they like it. So um, essentially at the end of the day, I take uh, all of this information and I have a ton of information and data that I have to crunch and I am the one that decides whether or not this product is going to be launched. So at the end of the day, I'm responsible for, um, for the genetic and, um, you know, I, I like that. I, 
I am able to stand 100% by my my product when I launch it because I've seen it in all of the different trials. I've seen it from since I guess since it was a little baby, you know, to to its maturation, and uh, yeah, I can stand by it. So I I think that that is an interesting way to manage product because it seems like it eliminates a little bit of the redundancy of handing it back and forth, but it also pulls in that that big team. Um, from from day one, I like the I, I like the thought of having a summit and working with sales and marketing and breeders and product launch managers all the way through and talking through the I guess the the way that that product would the needs and then the way that product would come to market that that makes a lot of sense. Thank you a lot for clarifying that. Um, since you do work with the new plants from breeding all the way through the point when you hand them over for commercialization. Can you sort of set the stage and, and maybe tell our listeners what the product pipeline looks like in terms of the stages of development when you're working with these products? Yeah, sure. Um, essentially, I can break it down into about five different stages of the pipeline. Uh, the first one is going to be conceptualization. Uh, this is essentially where we brainstorm the design of the new product. Um, the second stage is going to be uh, research and germplasm acquisition. Um, and this is where we do all of the research regarding possible markets and also obtain any background scientific knowledge that we need. Um, and then we will gather any plant materials that we need for the crossing. So the third stage is breeding. And breeding can be really fast or it can really take a while depending on the trait that we're trying to breed. If it's a simple trait, you know, it could be one cross and then done. If it's um, a trait that, you know, is dictated by six different genes, that's going to take a whole lot longer because we need to be able to stack those genes. Um, the fourth stage is going to be trialing. Um, so we want to observe the genetic in as many different environments as possible to get, you know, heat reads, cold reads. Um, short day reads, long day reads, and then um, the fifth step is going to be the introduction, and that is where we do our rollout events, such as like the Costa season premiere, which was held this year in week 10. We also have cast, which, um, you know, takes place in the spring, is one of the bigger events. Um, then there's some other events, like Home Depot event, um, lots of events for people to go see the new genetics at. No, and, and I, I would guess that every every one of those stages in the pipeline has its uh, own intricacies and um, all the way up and through the introduction where we're, you know, picking and choosing the products and really um, positioning them to uh, to the to the growers who are going to end up end up using them. So when you look at, uh, I don't know, I guess we'll start with con conceptualization. What what gets a plant breeder up in the morning, all fired up and, and ready to begin this phase? Is it is it your curiosity? Is it the idea of bringing a cool plant to market? What I guess what goes on inside your mind when when you're conceptualizing a, a new plant? Yeah, so um, I think yeah, conceptualization comes in in many forms. Uh, I like to say sometimes it's just like a, a stroke of genius. Uh, sometimes you know I can just see a plant and be like, oh, wow, that really needs improvement. I can do that. Like, I can improve that pretty easy. Um, and sometimes it's market demand. So, um, for, 
for example, Starry Night was put on the market. And since it's so beautiful and popular, you see a lot of companies also making their own versions of this polka dot petunia. So essentially, it's, the market wants Starry Night. So go out there and make a Starry Night. So the concept essentially is, is already built. Um, you might want to go ahead and make it a little bit different. Like, oh, I want a Starry Night, but I want a pink background, which, you know, is also already out there. Just make it a little bit different. Or, hey, I want Starry Night, but maybe it needs to be 30% bigger and make it like a universally Starry Night. I don't know. Um <laughs> So it's a, it's a couple different things. Um, so besides being like a specific type of plant, there's also the market needs a specific, uh, has specific needs for plants. So we're seeing more need for uh, drought-tolerant plants or xeriscape plants. Um, there's also demand for more shade plants or plants um, to go in the jungle, which you talk about. Um, and then people really want dual purpose plants as well. So they want, you know, they want the plant that's going to be pretty, but also attracts the hummingbirds or the pollinators of other sorts. So, um, we just, just follow that, that lead for that demand. I think that our, our uh, grower retail uh, listeners are going to love the just to think about the fact that all the way back in the breeding process, you're, you're thinking about solving those problems that they hear at the garden center, the drought tolerance, the need for shade, um, dual purpose, pollinators. I think that uh, I, I, I just always feel like we're, there's a little bit of a disconnect between retailers and, and consumers not understanding that those needs are being addressed all the way back at the breeder level. So. Um, I'd love to hear that. So well, go ahead. I'm a gardener too. So <laughs> these are things that I want. So oftentimes I'm breeding for what I would want in my garden as well. I, and that's fantastic. Keep at it. Seriously. I think that that, that sort of authenticity is what we need. Um, so now you've got this brilliant idea. The light bulb is shining over your head and you're ready to really dig in and do the research. And this I think when I when I first started learning about the process and in, in plant acquisition and research, the acquisition of the breeding, um, I really got excited and it was something I really was unaware of. So, in that in that regard, what's next? I, I know a lot of work needs to be done before you can actually begin breeding on these plants. Yeah, there's actually a ton of work that needs to be done. Um, so first, um, so let's kind of make a theoretical situation. Uh, so I have this new concept. Um, I was walking along the beach the other day uh, in the sand dunes by my house, which I do pretty often, and I saw um, a pretty little pink flower. Um, so it's it's a pretty color. It's got nice big flowers. It's growing in the sand, so it's got to be drought tolerant, right? Um, so I decide I want to go ahead and see if I can tame it and turn it into something that could be marketable. Um, so here are some of the things that um, I think about when breeding or before breeding. Um, so w what is the growth range of it? Essentially, is it only going to grow on the beach? Is it only going to grow in this climate where it's really hot during the day and cold at night? How long does it stay in flower for? Because we don't want something that's going to bloom for a week and then grow out of flower. Um, that's going to be too hard to fix. Um, have to think about biological systems. Uh, will it outcross? Will it self? 
This determines how I'm going to set up my crossing block. Uh, is there a large genetic pool available? Essentially, is, is this the only plant of its species or its genus? If so, breeding is going to be a bit harder and I'm going to have to be a little bit more creative and understand that it's going to take longer to actually make this a product if I even want to tackle it. Um, are there other colors besides pink? Because pink is great, but you know, yellow is really nice too. Um, can I buy germplasm to breed with? Essentially, can I look online and find some seeds or some cuttings out there and start breeding with that? Or do I need to take cuttings directly off the beach? Um, if I take cuttings directly off the beach, am I breaking a law? Um, cause you know, as a ball, we're really ethical and we pride ourselves in that. Um, are there dormancy issues in the seed? Cause if there are, that makes for one, a really good veg product because seeds not going to want to tackle it, but two, it still means that I'm going to have to breed longer for it for, you know, in the, in the pipeline. Um, so another thing is if we're looking at a wild plant, we need to know if it's invasive because we don't want to release something that's, you know, going to be the next new kudzu. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a million things we have to think of, and it really takes time before we actually uh, do the first crossing. Um, a lot of the time actually just comes from germplasm collection, um, sowing out seed. We have to get things timed right. So if it's a photosensitive crop, we need to make sure that it's going to be blooming within the right window, or you know, if it's, it's something that needs heat, we need to make sure that it's sown for, for that timing as well, like during the summer. I think it's all those all those variables that just sort of blew my mind when I was first learning about it. It's all the different things that you have to consider before even starting, um, including mm -hmm. not limited to can can you get a hold of the germplasm to work with. So, um, yeah. th thanks for sharing that. I think that that that's just that's something that we're not always aware of um, how much really goes in, how much sort of pre work goes in before you actually, you know, start start working on the crop. So. I know a little bit about breeding just from being in the industry for a while and uh, and, and talking to you guys and, and hearing a little bit about how products come to market, but it always still really seems like magic to me. It's like people who make music. I'm not a musician, so when I hear great music, I'm like, wow, that's it's magical. So it's, this is so much the same to me. But So what are the next steps and how do you actually begin the breeding work? And you know, one question I know that, that we both get and comes up quite a bit is how is breeding different from making GMO crops? Yeah, so I'm going to start first with the magic part. Um, I like to think I do magic, but essentially breeding is just a numbers game um, that leans a lot on genetics, uh, plant biology, and a little bit of horticulture. So I'm going to draw it out for you in numbers. So uh, the human genome is made up of about 20,000 genes. Um, while our model plant, Arabidopsis saliana, this is the plant that a lot of us used in grad school um, just to do some fun plant science, has about 26,000 genes. ZMAs, which is corn, is 32,000 genes, and then we have rice with 41,000 genes. So, for every one gene, there's four possible combinations. Um, if you think back to your high school or your college biology, um, just think back to that. Uh, Punnett square we used to use one gene for combinations. So essentially, uh, for 20,000 genes, do you want to guess? 
the number of genetic combinations? Uh, I am not good at math. It's a ton. So what? It, what's the number? It's it's 400 quadrillion. Quadrillion. It's actually a, a, a number I didn't even know existed is quadrillion. Um, so there's just a ton of different combinations that you can get if you have 20,000 uh, genes. And to see 400 quadrillion combinations, you would need one trillion greenhouses. Yeah, so we don't have that much. We have a lot of ball. I, I think I'm very lucky with the resources they give me, but I don't have a trillion greenhouses. Um, so essentially what we need to do is um, combine, combine the best genetics um, and get what we need with the resources that were allotted. Um, so it's just a process of crossing the best gen and making, making the best selections for the, the traits that we want. Um, sometimes the plants don't want to behave, and we do have to get in um, some people that I also think of as magicians. That's the Ball Helix group. Um, this is essentially our support laboratory. They can do things like embryo rescue. Uh, this is needed when we have incomplete fertilization of a plant. And so essentially, uh, you'll have the makings of a seed, the beginning stages of a seed, but if you just let it be, it wouldn't fully develop. So they can help it to fully develop. Um, they can do chromosome doubling. So most of the plants we work with are diploid, like you and I, Bill. We have two sets of chromosomes. Um, but a lot of plants are tetraploid or sometimes hexploid. Uh, octoploid is a little bit much. We don't usually work on that level. Um, so angelonia, the angelonia we work with is tetraploid and it makes for a bigger flower, um, um, a hardier plant, a nice thick stem. Um, so if we need we need a plant doubled, they can do it very easily. So this, this is some laboratory technique, but by no means does it make it a GMO crop. So I'll tell you how I use these definitions. So most plants out there, anything you see at the grocery store, anything you see at the garden center has been bred. Um, some people call these GM crops, like genetically modified. Their genes have been modified by humans. I don't particularly ever call them GM crops because it's too easily confused with the term GMO, which is genetically modified organism. A genetically modified organism has genes that have been inserted from a um, from a species that is unrelated. So uh, Bt cotton, Bt corn has a gene uh, brought in from bacteria, which makes it uh, indigestible by leptodopterans. Um, so essentially, you're bringing in some foreign DNA. Um, it's not bred in. We can't do this by natural breeding. This is this is something beyond the scope of breeding. I have never made a GMO crop, um, not even in grad school. Um, so, yeah, I just breed stuff. It's <laughs> a lot easier. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so now you have a bunch of plants um, out of the quadrillions, and I, I can't imagine all of them are going into a commercial greenhouse. How do you figure out what has potential and what doesn't? Um, so this is a trial by fire process. Uh, essentially, I am going to be allotted a certain stock space. So for one of my crops, let's pretend I have space for about 800 plants. Um, 
currently I have 600 plants in stock and therefore I have room for about 200. So in my next selection cycle, I'm going to make 200 selections so that the next time I go for, to read a trial, I have 800. Out of those 800, um, some are going to get killed, what we call killed, um, essentially eliminated from the pipeline almost from the get-go because they have reading issues. Um, and this is something that we don't want a grower to have to work around. This, is, this isn't something we want to have to work on at all. Um, if it has any sort of rooting issue, we get it out of the pipeline as soon as possible. And then in trials, we're going to look at the normal traits such as color, flower size, uh, is it branching, does it have pH sensitivity, um, does it get powdery mildew? If it gets powdery mildew, that's another reason to essentially kick it out of the pipeline. So the goal is to essentially eliminate as much as I can um, after each trial season. And that way, come next selection cycle, I can make a whole bunch of new selections. Um, so it's a, it's a repeating, repeating process. And at the end, you know, after a couple years of trialing, I'm left with a small pool of plants that did, performed really well um, in all of the trials. And I will come through the numbers, all the data, all the pictures I've taken, because I take pictures of every single plant at every trial, um, and see what is worthy to go forward, if anything is worthy to go forward at all. Um, oftentimes, we have years where we just won't introduce a plant in a certain crop, because if it's not good enough, why bother? If it doesn't beat, one, our current commercial, or you know the competitors, uh, material, then it's, it's not going to work. It's not worth it. So I like that, and I'm sure the growers appreciate the fact that immediate grounds for immediate removal from class is no is having rooting issues. I think that uh, that that's definitely critical and uh, something that I think we all appreciate up and down the chain. Yes. So out of hundreds or more at this point, you've you've picked this winner. Um, How's a company like Ball Floor Plant going to commercialize this and uh, and get these crops to greenhouses in North America or, or around the world? So um, essentially, after I make the decision um, in conjunction with the help of you know our whole, our whole team, because we often work together as a team uh, to launch the product, um, the the product is going to be available uh, sometimes, not every time, but oftentimes. Um, in what is called a sample program. And this is where some of the growers can choose to buy the plant and essentially trial it uh, in their conditions. Um, yeah, so the product launch manager and marketing take over the genetic and um, essentially I don't have to be as involved uh, with the genetic anymore. Um, they'll give me updates on any feedback from growers or feedback from our production team in Los Limas, um, if it's doing really well or if it's not doing well. Um, yeah, these are things that I need to know. Uh, so yeah, so if we if we decided to launch a product, if I'd made the decision in 2017, um, that product will be for sale um, fully in 2019. So it takes two years to 
get the supplies uh, at the farm of, um, up so that we have enough to fulfill the grower uh, desire. No, and that makes sense. And I, I would uh, suspect that in future episodes of STEM, I will be talking to uh, the, the marketing team and the product launch team from Ball Flora Plant. Um, I know that they uh, they have su- such a critical piece in this whole puzzle and, and taking that handoff from you and bringing that product to market. Um, so as an expert, I've called you a magician, a creator of beautiful things. Do you have anything else to share with the listeners? I think now is really your chance to talk to growers and retailers across North America and maybe even around the world. Do you have any any last thoughts about you know your your role as a breeder and product manager and and um, and, and what what you need in terms of feedback or ideas or anything that you really need to tell uh, tell the growers who are listening? Yeah, I'd say please please give us your feedback. Um, I give feedback on some products every so often via a territory manager or a sales rep. And I just can't tell you how invaluable that information is to me. Um, and uh, yeah, just, just get it back to me as soon as possible. There's there's some products, you know, that have been on the market for a while and, you know, didn't hear any issues with them or about them, you know, for the first year, year and a half that, that I was with the company. And then all of a sudden, you know, get in a flood of complaints, unfortunately, about about a product. Um, it's kind of like the growers may have just had enough. <laughs> like it's just like, okay, we can't we can't fix this problem ourselves. We can't fix this with with cultural. Um, now now it's actually time to demand that we have a better genetic. Um, yet while a lot of things, a lot of issues can be fixed culturally. Um, essentially it all comes down to genetics. Um, genetics can solve a lot of problems and, uh, I just need to know what the problem is so that I can breed a better product for the growers. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And the sooner, so the sooner, you know, uh, the issue, the sooner you can correct it. Well, I appreciate this so much, Laura. I think that if any of our listeners have any questions, requests, want to send that kind of feedback, or even reach out to a, to a real-life plant breeder and product manager responsible for bringing this new technology to market in the form of plants, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you or to reach out to Ball Flora Plant with new ideas or, or crops? Um, I'd say just go ahead and email me. My email address is lmaser, L-M-A-S-O-R at ballhort.com and um, so you know I, I breed the calabacoa verbena angelonia but you know I share office space with the petunia the cetera the bidens the salvia breeders so we all talk and I can pass information on to them and um, actually all of the R&D team we we talk a lot so we work we work a lot as a team so any information uh, brought to my attention can also be brought to their attention very easily Excellent. And I will put um, Laura's email address and all of the links to Ball Flora Plant and, uh, and select a one who's an, another vegetative breeding company that um, Ball Seed works with uh, very closely into the show notes so that if you uh, want to reach out with some ideas or requests or um, I guess even if you have some complaints about current genetics, uh, uh, Laura's uh, been generous, generous enough to give us uh, her email. So Thank you so much, Laura, and to STEM listeners, I'm sure 
that now you have a new appreciation of all the work and thought that goes into bringing these new plants to market. Thanks so much for listening to STEM, insider tips for greenhouse pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com, B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com, or on Twitter at Bill Calkins. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And check out the show notes for links to even more content related to this episode, including a presentation on plant breeding from Dr. Maser that you can share with your team. Let's end this episode with a quote from Dean Kamen, inventor of the Segway, that I think really describes the excitement plant breeders like Laura bring to our industry. Every once in a while, a new technology, an old problem, and a big idea turn into an innovation.